welcome to episode 126 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, we answer the most important question of the year, perhaps, is the Hendrick dominance over? A look at the tracks that matter and why HMS could be SOL. That plus our big Martinsville preview, three title spots still up for grabs, seven drivers who can do it. We will tell you what matters at that little track in Virginia. But first, as always, this is episode 126. So we'll take a quick look back on when NASCAR forced all Cup Series teams to go to four-team maximum, and Roush Fenway Racing was forced to shut down the number 26 team prior to 2010. David, great choice for a topic. For those that don't remember, back in the booming mid-2000s, right, a strong Roush contingent decided to go full-time with a fifth cup team. We'd seen the 26 car before in some other races, but this was bringing back driver Jamie McMurray full-time, big sponsor, Crown Royal, right, that purple car. I thought it was ugly as hell, but anyway. But that team, it was allowed to exist in sort of a grandfather clause way because NASCAR would make the decision that you had to top out at four teams per organization. And I think you can tell us more about how this went down because it had something to do, again, like I said, with a grandfather sort of clause and not going away right away, but sort of when a certain thing happened. What happened to the 26 car? Well, what happened? And I think this was just a a knee-jerk reaction by NASCAR to a problem that was always hypothetical but never at any point realistic. NASCAR wanted new owners into the sport, new blood, and that's completely understandable. And in a time uh, post-recession when big owners were buying out or merging or starting new teams with sponsors that they swiped from smaller organizations, this was kind of a real fear. Think of the, the journey of what uh, what came of MB2 Motorsports became Gen Racing that merged with DEI that merged with Ganassi to become <laughs> Earnhardt Ganassi Racing. You, I mean, you you could you could kind of see where they were going with it, but the fear of there being uh, I'll be generous and say five owners comprising the field. So you know, in theory, eight cars apiece. I don't think that fear was ever realistic when you consider the sheer operating costs. Because if every team costs about $20 million to operate, an eight-car platform is $160 million per year. And mind you, this is outside sponsorship, not TV money or purse or, uh, or even NASCAR-related sponsors that fuels uh, these teams. It's outside sponsorship, though. So $160 million primarily through that and maybe manufacturer support. But even then, it's hard to see that happening. So, you know, this decision, man, it's tough because you consider that it was just it was hard to keep a sponsor, uh, certainly to sustain one, even if you do somehow get a sponsor that big. And there's conflicts. You can't have them conflict within an organization with other companies. That's why UPS and FedEx would never be on the same team. And. Knowing what was to come, Alan, that outside sponsorship would be harder to get. I think marketers in the corporate sponsorship sector became wiser, um, better using their platform. You know, Home Depot, famous sponsor of Tony Stewart and Joe Gibbs Racing, left the sport 
to become what the presenting sponsor of ESPN's college game day. It's literally called college game day built by the home Depot. They have ownership Mm -hmm. of a, a widely watched TV show. That's just a smart spend. It's tough to compete with that. So this was always unrealistic and ultimately in hindsight, uh, much ado about nothing. And it ended up being that NASCAR came in uh, and told one organization to get rid of a car, uh, which reduced Roush Fenway's value really in the process and needlessly eliminated jobs at the time for what was likely, uh, I don't know, something not likely to happen. What was more likely is that the team would contract within itself, not because it was Roush Fenway, but that's just the nature of the sport and sponsorships come and go as do teams, economies bounce up and down. And that's what happened. Uh, so I, I personally think that this was a mistake. I, I'm okay. I, I'm curious to hear what you think, but if Hendrick wants a fifth team or JGR wants a fifth team and they can fund it and they can hire people and it creates jobs, I'm all for it. I don't think it's ever going to get to this wild saturation point where a few owners are owning all the teams, but uh, I don't know. Perhaps I digress. I just see this as uh, a mistake, a failure to recognize what was then a bubble, uh, even post-recession. So the signs were there that this wasn't going to last. I just think it was a big swing and a miss. Yeah, I mean, look, with hindsight, it seems much to do about nothing. Uh, you know, The mid-2000s were a big time, and maybe they were fearful of too many teams expanding and getting too big. Uh, as you said, the economy kind of took care of it on its own. Uh, you know, 2008 came through, and I don't think there would have been uh, any five-car teams. Nor, I mean, teams were struggling to have two-car teams back then, right? So uh, to have a rule in place to do that, and uh, again, like I said, th- there was some grandfathering in. They didn't just cut it off. Uh, I think it was until some sponsorship um, contracts ran out that they could yeah. officially run through. And that's when the 26 car closed. And at that point, I don't think Roush could afford an, a fifth team anyway. So, but, but just the notion of capping it, uh, wh- whether in theory that's a good thing so you don't only have what four team owners in in the series is that too much consolidated power i I don't know exactly what in theory it would have been good for but that's what happened you know they were trying to spread it around i guess again the getting was good when this idea was proposed and first sent in I, i don't know i mean did we ever hear about Team Hendrick wanting to start a fifth team and all of a sudden couldn't because of this rule? I mean, was the the want there? Not that I ever remember, David. Not that they would talk about, about much now, right? Because you can't. So uh, it's kind of a circular argument. You know, is, is it chicken or egg or do they not do it or pursue it because you can't? Um, I just never thought that there would be that much beyond Roush who would go to five teams because it is a massive expense. Uh, I'm going to posit something for you to ponder. New car coming, next gen. The operating costs are supposed to be lower. There are new owners already coming into the Cup Series. There's the potential for more new owners and and new manufacturers. Do we see another reduction? Do we see a cap at three in the future? Or do we stand pat? I would hope they stand pat because those are, are, are valuable charters, but I guess I see what you're saying. If it does do uh, what they hope is intended, uh, a diversity of ownership is a good thing. Um, so maybe that's why they want to to cap it. I, I don't know about reducing it, how that would go, but I understand where you're going with the thought process. 
because uh, it, it would invite new ownership. But you know, sometimes you just got to be happy with what you have, right? I mean, what's wrong with the Hendricks and the JGRs of the world who have dedicated their lives to making the sport better? Uh, I, I don't see too much wrong with that. No, ultimately, if you can field a competitive car and it allows for jobs within an industry that seems to be cutting jobs all the time, that strikes me as a good thing. I want that to continue. And I want to see as many competitive cars as possible because you and I both know that Denny Hamlin and Martin Truex aren't scratching each other's backs this weekend. Larson and Chase Elliott aren't. I know that they're paid by the same people, but that's not how you compete in NASCAR. Uh, We know the difference. I personally would like to see just as many competitive cars as possible. Mm -hmm. I'm not too worried about who the owner is just because I don't think it's going to hit this weird saturation point of four or five owners conglomerating one series. Yeah, like the 26 car didn't get snuffed out so a a fourth JGR car could run, right? <laughs> like, uh, if anything, I feel like it's at the back of the field that benefited, right? I mean, it just added another spot to come up, uh, you know, in 36 to 40th. Uh, it, it, having the 26 car or fifth car on a big team wasn't preventing another big team from fielding a competitive car. So, I don't know if it ever had its actual intention. Uh, what I will like to point out, David, is that uh, the, the, the debut of this full-time 26 car, I just have to point out, that was my first Daytona 500 because that was Jamie McMurray going back to Roush Racing. Jamie McMurray, the Joplin native. I worked in Joplin at the time, a young 23-year-old wannabe NASCAR reporter, and I sold our little TV station on letting us go to the Daytona 500 for this big debut, myself and my friend Gary Headley, the photographer extraordinaire. And that was my first Daytona 500 because of the 26 car, David. You didn't know that in picking this topic, but I'm glad you did. Wow. See, look at that. An origin story from Alan Kavana. Didn't expect that. My superhero origin story. I love it. Good stuff. Episode 126 detailing the demise of the 26 team. Let's get it started. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. David, we have one more race before the big championship, and we will get to previewing Martinsville in just a few moments. But the topic of this episode is really looking at Hendrick Motorsports and wondering With no more 550 horsepower tracks left, is the Hendrick Motorsports dominance over? This idea, David, popped in my head, really, because I was thinking about my fantasy team, to be honest. The last few weeks, I've been killing it in fantasy because it's been easy, right? We've been at a road course, and we've been at two mile and a half tracks. 
Who are the drivers this year that have flourished at those tracks? Hendrick Speed at road courses, their drivers as well. And then the mile and a half dominated by the speed of Kyle Larson. Really up there with the speed of William Byron. I mean, it, it has been easy to say, oh yeah, I think the Hendrick cars are going to do really good in these last few weeks because that's where we have come to know them, right? We've come to know their their perseverance, their performance at the road courses, at the 550 tracks. So that's easy from a results aspect. Take a deeper look for me. What's the best way to assess just how good they have been this year at these 550 tracks and the road courses? What do you look at? We don't typically do this, but let's just look at the wins anyway, because they've won five of the seven road course races this year, and they've won half of the 550 oval races, six of 12. I don't know what we were expecting coming in this season. I I think we thought they were going to have a field day on road courses, but that was mainly Chase Elliott driven. Uh, the, the Kyle Larson efflorescence on road courses. I'm not sure that anyone really saw that coming, but it happened and he won three times the 550. This is interesting, Alan, because the, the speed rankings of their four cars on 550 tracks, first, second, fifth, and 11th. I feel like it should have been a greater number than six on the wins out of 12 races. Mm. And And namely, I'm talking about Kyle Larson here because his dominance is pretty extraordinary. He led at least 70 laps in 10 of the 12 races using the 550 horsepower rules package. That's remarkable. And and, and that's that's kind of where they were organizationally. And even on the road courses, they ranked first, second, fourth, and 16th. Alex Bowman really needs to pick that up. Uh, But that's how fast they were. I mean, they trotted out competitive cars. William Byron had the fastest car on the Roval. Chase Elliott picked up his two wins on road courses. So they nailed those two track types. And where they've left things open, not that they've been bad at 750 horsepower tracks, but that's where results are more ambiguous because there's room for a JGR. There's room for a Penske. There's room for Eric Almarola, apparently, if we remember Mm -hmm. New Hampshire. And that is where this year that we have seen volatility because that, that is where the focus has hit. It's digressed from 550 and road courses, which fit into Hendrick's wheelhouse. How do you think we got here at least this year in 2021? Because, you know, how did JGR, Penske, or anyone else not have anything more to offer on these 550 tracks that that, that saw domination from from one team? Uh, you know, I think about last year as well. I mean, look, SHR definitely in the fold with Kevin Harvick. Uh, them not showing up this year at the 550 tracks. Do, I mean, it was. Do you think this was a choice? I don't know if that's a weird question. A choice yeah. not to be as good, but. I mean, does choice factor into this when Hendrick seems to be dominating and the other teams don't seem to be showing up as much? I think choice is an okay word. You, you So you brought up SHR and I have kind of, not that I've forgotten about them, but that was the one organization I figured would have shown up on 550 to compete with Hendrick, but that's not what happened. But when you say choice... The idea of 2021 being a lame duck season for this race car where there was a parts restriction 
and a limited ability to improve over the course of the year, that's a pretty big reason why Hendrick has been so dominant. Mm -hmm. But also, if you'll recall late last season, Hendrick Motorsports and RCR merged its two engine programs into one. And when they did this, engines for Ford and Toyota had already been submitted to NASCAR and locked in for this year. There was no serious engine development on this current engine over the course of this year. But because Hendrick and RCR merged, they were given more time to submit a new product. So they had uh, whatever it was, two and a half, three months or so to fine tune their engine program before this year in a period where Ford and Toyota could not respond. And damn it, if they didn't nail that engine package. Chevrolet teams outmotored uh, everyone this season on the big tracks. That was clear uh, last Sunday in uh, in Kansas. Only 28 of the 267 laps were led by a non-Chevrolet. Uh, the week prior in Texas, only 23 of 334 laps were led by a non-Chevrolet. Uh, the speed rankings for the year on motorsportsanalytics.com show a little more evenly distributed, but there's no arguing the strength of Chevrolet and Hendrick primarily while in clean air. And this doesn't extend to 750 tracks where there's less on throttle time and braking is more of, of an essential tool, but for the big tracks, the mile and a half, and even the, the two two-mile tracks that we saw this year, that advantage was inherent, and it led to one of the all-time great Hendrick Motorsports seasons. So again, all this said, 550, great for Hendrick. Road courses, great for Hendrick. That's why the last three weeks have been pretty good to them. No more of those tracks, though, David. So when we look toward the next two, Martinsville-Phoenix, both 750 tracks, which drivers, teams, do you feel are most dangerous? I have to believe JGR certainly comes back into the fold. Oh, I think so. Hamlin and Truex, especially. Uh, and even Penske, Ryan Blaney at Martinsville, and Joey Logano at Phoenix. They're uh, sneakily dangerous. And that's not to say that any of them tried for this, because again, that, that word uh, choice, because Denny Hamlin is good on short tracks. Ryan Blaney is good at Martinsville. Joey Logano was winning at Phoenix before Phoenix was important, <laughs> really. Yeah. So talent does translate, but the idea that those teams have this kind of speed, Hamlin ranked first in both uh, Martinsville and Phoenix in the spring. Truex was fast late in both of those races. Blaney had a big lead at Martinsville. Logano had a big lead at Phoenix. What they have, their speed at their disposal really allows those guys to pull even or surpass Hendrick here. And I look at the speed rankings for 750. Kyle Larson sort of breaks up the party. He ranks third in median lap time on 750, but Hamlin is the fastest. Logano is second. You wouldn't think that based on his results. Truex is fourth and Blaney is something of a Martinsville specialist. So these next two weeks, we'll see the most important races on the schedule this year. And that, that, uh, that doesn't change based on who's good, but was what does change is the fact that there's more than one team capable of showing up, dominating, and winning, and that's what makes these next 
two weeks, just championship aside, that's what makes it so fascinating. Yeah, I think a lot of us would agree that in, compared to the last three weeks, there's a lot more players involved in the, in the next two weeks, especially this weekend at Martinsville. Uh, we, we saw last year almost uh, the Penske strategy, right? Focus on the 750 tracks. That is the path to the championship. It put two of their cars in Phoenix, right? And so it seemed like it worked. Has JGR, among others, were they right to kind of do the same this year? I, I think Denny would say yes, right? If you've listened to his interviews the last few weeks, uh, one of them revealed just his mindset on the team plane going to Phoenix last year. They knew, David. They knew they were out of it. They, they knew at least they didn't have the speed to win it just on pure what happens on the racetrack, right? Something else would have to happen because they knew their speed at a place like Phoenix wasn't going to be enough. A title was not in their control, basically. And then you look to this year, the choices that they've made to be the fastest car on 750 tracks to put the work in. That is no accident. Does that seem like the right choice? Absolutely. Especially if they end up winning the championship, but even if they don't, Say they don't make it out of Martinsville or Kyle Larson wins Phoenix. It was always going to be their best shot because mm-hmm. if if they were out horsepowered on the bigger tracks and there was nothing that they could do about it, then really it's difficult to want to compete on 550 tracks at a high level. So it makes sense to say whatever we do at 550, we do but it will warrant nothing additional. Everything extra, any additional focus, that's going to go to 750 and these two tracks specifically. That is a disadvantage guiding you to create a new advantage elsewhere. And that's kind of what happened, but JGR knows where the bread is buttered. They'll get paid a lot of money if they win Phoenix, a lot of money. And they, as as you mentioned, they, they experienced that firsthand Last year, I mean, they were they were in the championship four, but they weren't really in the championship four, right? Because Hamlin didn't have anything not only for Chase Elliott, but also the two Penske cars. And what we've seen from him and Truex this season represents a tremendous course correction. Do you recall two years ago on on Reg, we did Requiems and Fixes, and my fix for Martin Truex was to get better at Phoenix? Yep, yep. Everything else was fine in his world, but he it was smoking. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't. It didn't matter to an equal degree, right? So now he's close to being there because he's he's the most recent Phoenix winner. So we shouldn't fault Joe Gibbs Racing for reading the tea leaves on the advantage Hendrick had at five fifty and understanding how the championship is truly won because that is the game. They chose to play it this way, and it might work, but if not, it was still a very good shot, all things considered. We've talked so much about uh, Hendrick for good reason, and Kyle Larson, obviously, for good reason. Let's not forget about the defending champion still defending, right? Well, we'll talk about Kyle Larson plenty in our championship preview. Uh, Chase Elliott still has to get there. He's in great position, right? 34-point buffer going into a track. That's pretty good to him that he won last year. So, I mean, is he a favorite at, at Martinsville, at least good enough to advance to the championship for? I would have to think with his recent performance at Martinsville, even if he's not there on the charts, I would think he's still a 34-point buffer is good enough to get him there. What, what say you, David? Yeah, I think I agree with that because his ability to pass is very likely his best ability 
at Martinsville. Of the remaining playoff drivers, he ranks first in surplus passing on 750 tracks. So he's got that. Uh, but as you said, the lack of speed on 750, he ranks sixth in average median lap time. Uh, you know, that's not great. It's also not bad. And he's got the uh, the 34-point cushion. I believe he'll get through. I worry that that cushion is going to cause the game plan to skew a little conservative. And that's the problem to me with safety nets or crutches. They're meant to be there in case you fail, Mm. but invariably they tend to be leaned on. And Elliot has a safety net with his passing. He probably has a safety net with how good his pit crew typically is. But you're right. The speed is kind of shaky at 750 this year. Yeah. But if we go back to last year, I think of Kevin Harvick, Mm -hmm. right? He came into the race Martinsville with a 42 point gap, right? Like impossible not to make it to Phoenix. And they just ran like crap, right? They didn't crash. Nothing happened. They just didn't have the speed when we all of a sudden switched to this 750 track format at at Martinsville, right? The performance, he got outperformed based on speed and, and just sheer racing last year. Uh, to cost him that that forty two point gap wasn't enough. I mean, Brad yeah. Keselowski, they just they just outran him on the track. I don't see that as much of a drop off in the nine team, if you will. That you know that we saw last year, say from five fifty to seven fifty with the four car. I don't see that that much drop off happening for the nine team. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And and I don't know. I mean, I don't know what Harvick's approach was last year. He he came out of it saying that they're always bad there. We know that that's not the case with Chase Elliott or Denny Hamlin, who has a similar point cushion. But you always look at that safety net and and wonder how it can backfire. And Kevin Harvick last year is pretty much the textbook way of it backfiring. I mean, it's not additional aggression isn't needed, right? Because their backs aren't against the wall per se, but they do need to actually run the race because consider who's below the cut line. Ryan Bellaney's below it. Martin Truex is below mm-hmm. it. They can haul at Martinsville. So even though the cushion is there, there's the impetus from your competition that knows how to do very well at this racetrack that they're probably going to be gunning for a win outright. So this, no, this is not the race that you can rest on your laurels. And it's certainly not a race where you can deviate focus. We saw what happened to Kevin Harvick this time last year. I don't think the nine team will repeat that. I feel good that they won't, but that is something to keep an eye out on. Hendrick, they've been awesome so far, especially the last three weeks. Tons of speed. What will the next two weeks bring? That's what we're looking forward to. All right, so that brings us to our official Martinsville race preview. Uh, look, we're getting down in the nitty gritty. Some some topics are gonna kind of mix in with each other, but our official Martinsville race preview, David. Uh, we talked plenty of Hendricks so far. Maybe we'll bring him up in a, in a second here. But let's talk about two other drivers, Denny Hamlin and Ryan Blaney. You go back to the spring race; they dominated at Martinsville. Denny led two hundred and seventy six laps. Ryan Blaney led 157 laps. I've done the math for you, David. I know you're not so good with math, being the numbers guy in this relationship. That's 413 of the 500 laps. Those two drivers led in the spring. Neither of them won the race. When you look back and say, what went wrong? What do you see? What what can we learn? What should they learn from the spring race? 
Uh, it's a lot of laps. That's some good math. Uh, Denny Hamlin lost on what at Martinsville amounts to a long run. His restarting on the day was flawless. He retained on all 14 of his restart attempts from the front row, and he was the only driver to pass for the lead from second place on the restart to first. But Martin Truex nipped him on that last long run, and that was it. Hamlin was apparently tuned for short runs. It worked well when it did. And at Martinsville, you're going to see plenty of restart. That was the plan. And yeah, it it worked until it didn't matter anymore because that final restart was with 41 laps to go. That's a lot of time for things to go wrong at this track, especially if you don't have the best long run car. And that was the case. Ryan Blaney just self-inflicted wounds. He he ran over an air hose, if I recall correctly. So that was a penalty. Started from the rear on that late restart. They were previously mired in traffic after Todd Gordon made a call for tires. I know that Blaney was the primary long-run combatant to Hamlin that day, but they sort of took their eyes off of uh, the track position that they had too often. Both crew chief and driver made it additionally difficult for themselves Uh, So key to this weekend, don't do that. If you can avoid it, don't do it. But what was interesting is that they both, whether intentionally or not, chose to approach Martinsville from extreme angles. Hmm. Hamlin with a short run car and Blaney with a long run car. And in the end, it was a car that did both things okay, but not the best that ended up winning. Uh, Truex up until that final restart did not lose a single position on a short run. Those restarts allowed him to maintain and gain some track position after uh, him and James Small made a lot of adjustments and the short runs were good enough. We'll talk about recovery here in a minute, but they were good enough to keep him in the ball game long enough for his long run speed to take over, which it finally did. So that race in the spring illustrated that, at least at Martinsville, a variety of pathways are realistic for winning. Yeah, you talk about sticking around till you, your advantage is an advantage. Truex didn't take the lead until lap 455. Uh, as you said, traded it with Denny once uh, once off, but then he led the final 16 laps, and that was enough, right? I mean, one lap is enough, but uh, despite the dominance of Blaney and, and Denny, uh, it, it just took a, a late race being good then uh, for Truex to get that win. Now, that we should also talk about the restarts and how they factor into all this. There's going to be a lot of discussion about Martinsville restarts this weekend, and I'm telling you, it'll be blown out of proportion because <laughs> the restart dynamic here is one of the most overrated, overanalyzed things in all of NASCAR. It is as straightforward of a restart dynamic as we can get in this era. The front row, both spots retain at an 80.5% clip, and within the top 14, the average positional change is less than a half position for, I think, 13 of the 14 spots. So a bad restart or a bad restart spot still allows room for recovery. You're, you're not in the thick of it if, if, if a restart goes wrong. This is a race where long run passing can win out. Uh, that big spoiler is gone. It isn't 2019 anymore. And that's good news for all of these guys because all of them are in charge of their own destinies. And with the amount of 
important surrounding this race, that's a very good thing because of the seven guys that have yet to advance to the championship for some of them can really move and move well. And Martinsville is going to allow for that. Then why are we so obsessed with getting stuck on the outside, David? Why? We think about this dangerous restart dynamic. You tell us it's something different. I don't know. I, I mean, <laughs> it's been, it has been uh, an even dynamic, relatively even dynamic for quite a while. And I think it's a matter of optics because we see guys go for it. I mean, Denny Hamlin made passes from the outside for the lead. He was the only guy to do it in the spring, but we see those battles just come up empty so often at this track. And we know it to be a track where the bottom is preferred, but that's as the run goes. If you're just getting up to speed, you can hang for a little bit and hang long enough to find your spot on the bottom, which a lot of these guys, they're pretty smart, especially if they're running up at the front of the field, they know how to create that spot. So it isn't nearly as dangerous as optically, it seems. Uh, Certainly that's true in the numbers. So Contrary to what we've seen the last two weeks at Kansas and Texas, restarts are not panic time at this race. The true panic comes when it's a long run, your car's going south, and you're unable to make those passes because look who hasn't made the championship for yet. Chase Elliott, Kyle Busch, Martin Truex, Denny Hamlin. These guys are going to be able to pass at Martinsville, right? So that that's an issue. If you can't do that, they certainly can. That's where the real panic will set in. Uh, last few weeks, uh, as we were talking, you know, HMS domination straight up, we could look at the speed charts, right at the five fifty tracks. And I think making choices, you know, in terms of winners who will perform, uh, picking potential winners, it was as easy as looking at the motorsports analytics speed charts, right? Will that still be the case for a 750 track like Martinsville? Should I be, are are the speed charts the best indication of who will do the best this weekend? Uh, Yes. And if you want to go even like a refined search, previous Martinsville race and and then maybe New Hampshire, the the other 750 race on a truly flat Hmm. racetrack. We didn't see JGR much. They didn't last very long in New Hampshire, um, but the Penske cars certainly showed up. So if you're a Penske fan, there's plenty of reason to be optimistic about this weekend. And if we recall at New Hampshire, Hendrick had a tough go of it. Chase Elliott was the only leader, if I'm not mistaken, of the Hendrick bunch uh, and still didn't get a finish. So this one, yeah. I mean, we're, we're going into this race. This isn't uh, a Formula One situation where only two teams can win. This is uh, a wide open scenario, and I'm I'm curious. I mean, I, I think we're going to be, at least for the next two weeks, we're going to be getting uh, the best out of these three big organizations that are still in the playoffs. All right, then give it to me. Who is winning Martinsville? I think someone is going to go out this weekend and absolutely stomp this race. And it might be Denny Hamlin. He's got the speed. Uh, but I, I think he's I, – I worry about the safety net. Again, I, mm-hmm. I feel like the, the, the cushion might be too much. So my pick, because he's got nothing to lose, is Ryan Blaney. Uh, he's teetering on the cut line. 
I like the prospect of a long run guy winning this race because we've had low caution volumes frequently this year. I mean, that's, that's the norm, uh, right now in the cup series and he is well suited for that and for restarts. He's still good there as well, but I factor in how well he performed in the spring and how fast he was again at New Hampshire, that other flat 750 track. And I think this is the guy to, to go out, stink up the show for a while and, uh, and, and qualify into his first championship for show. Nice. Good pick. You're always thinking with your head. I always think with my heart, David, I got to go Joey Logano (laughs) thinking with my heart here, looking at the speed charts. He's very fast. So it's not an extremely dumb pick (laughs) the 750 tracks. uh, As we mentioned before, I think he's second on those charts. Uh, but we've seen him do it before and, uh, aggression, uh, I guess where you would hope for a long run race. If I'm planning on a, a race with cautions toward the end, I'm betting on restartability and sheer aggression experience. I'm going with Joey Logano, another Penske car, but I think they can both get it done. Uh, but I am hoping for a storyline here and I think Logano's the guy to do it. We're both picking Penske cars. That is fascinating. Something we haven't done in weeks, which is yeah. a, a big, big part of uh, this whole episode here, right? How about your contrarian pick? Someone uh, maybe you will surprise us. Uh, Bubba Wallace is my contrarian pick. Uh, finishes of 11th, 21st, and 16th in his last three Martinsville starts. He ranks fourth in surplus passing on 750 horsepower tracks. We talked a little about his crew chief change a few episodes ago. Crew chiefs uh, that are that are new after the change don't necessarily make you faster, uh, and this one hasn't. Wallace actually ranks slower in median lap time since Booty Barker's arrival, but the finishes are much better. Five of Bubba's six races with Barker have resulted in a finish of 16th or better, Prior to the change, he earned 11 such finishes in 28 tries. Bubba quite fancies Martinsville as a track. He's yeah. going there in the trucks. Uh, yeah, I think that run continues. I like that pick. Uh, yes, I mean, sometimes drivers and tracks, they just seem good to each other. And Bubba, that's one place where those smooth passes just seem to be there, getting that track position and getting more out of the car than maybe is there. And now he's going back with a, with a little better car and a little more experience even earlier than this year. So I like that pick, but I'm going with the easy pickings. William Byron, too easy. <laughs> but, uh, but at least hey, at least it's something of a long shot, right? Plenty of incentive. Uh, he's got great runs there. I mean, he has good finishes there. He crashed last year in this race. But uh, look, if William Byron goes out there and wins, that's only going to help the Hendrick Motorsports team, right? So he has plenty of incentive to go up there and get a win as as if he does in every other week. But I'm just saying that uh, look, we, we've, we've come to praise him for all the good reasons. He's no longer uh, competing for the playoffs or, or, or a spot in Phoenix, but he's got a damn fast car and a lot of skills. So why not make him my contrarian pick? He will be up there, I believe, David. Oh, uh, what is this segment anymore? I don't know. <laughs> we're running out. Come on, we're running out. I, I've, I think I've done well, Tyler Reddick, the last few weeks. He had a good run last week. and not, not a good finish, but he was up there, man. He was good last week. So some of these contrarian picks have been okay. I'm patting myself on the back. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're picking legitimately good race car drivers Damn as it. your contrarian picks. Uh, not to... Not to knock Bubba, but uh, man, this is his this is his best track. You gotta you gotta give him a nod. Uh, but yeah, Willie B, 
um, should be great. He's He's been fast everywhere. Of course, it's going to go well. Maybe you heard of him. All right. Well, that's been good. All right. Another good episode. Episode 126 of Positive Regression. It's going to be a fun weekend in Martinsville. Do not forget, we are available on all major podcast platforms. No matter your device, our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posrecpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. That stuff helps spread the word about this podcast. We notice, and it is so appreciated, and that is one of the best ways to get the word out, leaving a rating or review. It does help us get a bigger audience, get a more... uh, uh, Smarter fan base, smarter listenership. That's always a good thing, especially for the racing world. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Reach out to us on Twitter at PoserecPod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, it's getting down to crunch time. You are always busy. What do you got this week? This week for NBC Sports, I'm writing on the standout performers this year at 750 horsepower tracks. Only two more races uh, for this rules package I've enjoyed watching races on these tracks these last two years, so I'm going to send it off as best as I can with a celebration of its best drivers and teams. So look forward to that. And also on Sunday, the big Martinsville race preview, you can catch both of those on nascar.nbcsports.com. All right, good stuff. If you're listening to this on Thursday morning, thank you. First of all, you are a subscriber. Uh, after you listen, make sure you check out my Twitter feed at Alan Kavana and watch this week's edition of Quick Hits. It's a video I do for Speed Sport that kind of sets your motorsports table beyond NASCAR, dirt, everything, NHRA, whatever's going on. We try to preview, give you a few details about what's going on in the racing world. I hope you enjoy that. On Fridays, make sure you check out Fantasy Live on NASCAR.com because it is getting down in the nitty-gritty. If you're trying to win your league, there are good, positive, strategic picks to be made, especially now that some of your uh, best drivers are no longer available since you probably used all your allotted drivers, but we'll try to fill you in with some good details there. And David, I'm going, if weather permitting, I'm going to go up uh, to Martinsville Speedway on Saturday and watch some truck racing as a fan. I think that'll be a a wonderful, wonderful way to spend a beautiful Saturday afternoon, weather willing. If you see me and say hi, I'll buy you a hot dog. So there you go. How do you like that? Well, hot dogs are affordable, so that makes sense. Well, uh, that's not the point, David. I'm trying to be nice here. (laughs) I will spend $2 on you if you find me. That's what I'm saying. So, But hopefully I meet some of you listeners. That'd be fun. But it should be a good weekend nonetheless. But another good episode. Thank you for listening. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for listening to Positive Regression. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.